I'm going to pray. I'm going to get into this uh, passage of scripture this morning. I, I have to say that I'm norm- nervous most of the time that I preach up here. Uh, I think that that's actually a good thing when you're handling scripture. What makes things more nervous sometimes is when you're dealing with a passage where there is a variety of opinion and thought, and sometimes that tends to be a little bit contentious for folks. And so, just kind of makes things a little bit more nerve-wracking, actually, to be honest with you. Um, But you know what? We're going to be getting into the book of Genesis, and we're going to spend a bit of time in Genesis chapter 1, probably for three weeks, actually. Um, Today will be more of an introduction, maybe, and a bit more apologetic in nature, and then we'll kind of move on from there. There's some things that I think that are absolutely important that we talk about when it comes to the book of Genesis, and especially Genesis chapter 1. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to kind of dive in this morning. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we've had this morning already to sing out praises to you. To be able to, in song, declare what we believe. For those of us that were singing that song and that those lyrics were meaningful, we believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And he's given us new life. God, many of us can say that because we've experienced that. My heart goes out to those that might be here this morning who can't say that because they haven't received new life in Christ, I pray that this morning your Holy Spirit would be working on their lives today and bringing them to saving faith in Jesus. And I pray that as we dive into the book of Genesis that we would see the absolute importance of why we study this book. So God, I pray that we would be willing to maybe not focus so much on things that we've heard or been taught elsewhere, but that we would actually focus on what your word says. And so we ask your leading and your guiding today in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, it's not the only place that we're going to be this morning, but is the, the, the passage that we're going to be predominantly in. As I said, there are... Um, there's kind of two aspects of this, this morning, this message. I, I have the series called Back to the Beginning, because that's really what we're doing, is we're going back to the beginning of the book. We haven't actually been to the beginning of the book for quite some time, actually. Um, and so we need to get back to the beginning. But I think it's important that we understand that we need to look at what we hear, what we read, what we're taught, We need to filter all of these things through the filter of God's word. Unfortunately, I find that we as whatever Canadians, North Americans, people living in the 21st century, we often try to filter the Bible through what we've been taught somewhere else. Or we try to mold and shape scripture around some other theory or some other idea that we've heard that we like or that we've bought into. And I, I, I think that that's actually a problem. And I think that Christians, as Christians, we can struggle with that. And so I want to talk about Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read it through together. Um, We're going to read the whole chapter in its entirety, although we won't spend time in certain sections this morning. We'll come to those sections as we continue our study. But I want us to read uh, or follow along together. It says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was morning one day. 
Your wording may be a little bit different than that, but it should be consistent with that phrase. It says, then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating the water from the water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so, and God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and he gathered the waters, and he called, sea, the, he called seas, and God said that that was good. And God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to all their kinds. And it was so. And the earth produced vegetation, uh, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs, excuse me, serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as all the stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And he saw it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures, and let birds fly over the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moved and swarms on the water, in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creatures that crawl and the water, wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. So God made wildlife of, of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, and God saw that it was very good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the earth of the entire, excuse me, on the surface of the entire earth. And every tree whose fruit contains seeds, this will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that he, all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning the sixth day. We're going to stop there. Because really, the next passage is, or the next part of the week, seventh day, is actually in chapter 2, and so we're going to kind of reserve that for when we get to chapter 2. But that's Genesis chapter 1. For many of us, it's very familiar. For many of us, we've been taught through this. We actually had uh, a gentleman from Creation Ministries come, and he was talking an awful lot about creation and Scripture, and so we were, fam we were made familiar 
with this passage even then if we had not been familiar with it too much before that. What I want to say right off the bat is this, as I said before, that I am going to be doing, I guess, a little bit of apologetic stuff, but when I was reading through this passage and when I was thinking about Genesis chapter 1 and I was thinking the book of Genesis, the question came to my mind, why is Genesis so important? And kind of more specifically, why is the first couple chapters of Genesis so important? And I just wrote three answers to that question. They're not, they're not exhaustive answers, but they're pretty straightforward answers. And they are th aspects of it that I would like for us to address, if not this morning, in the weeks to come. Number one is this. It establishes clearly our relationship to God. The reason why we study Genesis is because right off the bat, it is made abundantly clear one very important thing right off. In the beginning, God. And so right off the bat, as human beings, we are confronted by the fact that there is a relationship between us and God, or there is supposed to be, or that in reality there is, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Number two, it helps us to understand our uniqueness in creation. Now again, that's a little bit later on in the chapter. We're actually not going to get there today. But we are going to be talking about the fact that as human beings, we are unique in God's creation. There is a reason for this. And that lends to the third thing that I wrote down, and that is it explains our purpose and our responsibility as human beings. And so, Lord willing, we're going to be working through that a little bit as we go. But what I want to say is this, when we read Genesis chapter 1, depending on our level of education and where we've gotten and so on and so forth, we are going to inevitably read through this passage and say, yeah, but I remember reading this, this place, or I remember being taught this in this school, or in this grade, or in whatever. And I think it's important that we understand a few things when it comes to ways in which people have tried to explain the Genesis account. One of the things that comes up a lot, especially at the theological level, is there's discussion about the fact that the book of, of Genesis, especially the first couple chapters, it's Hebrew poetry. And so because it's Hebrew poetry, you know, you can't really take that literally because poetry is, well, it's poetry. Poetic language, sometimes it's, you know, allegorical or illustrative or whatever. And so, you know, the, the, the writer of Genesis was, you know, waxing eloquent in his poetry. And, you know, it's, we just kind of take it, not at face value, but, you know, it's, from a spiritual perspective, we can kind of take and say, yeah, yeah, God was involved in, you know, the development of the world. But don't get too hung up on the actual language of it. You can't take it literally. I find it interesting that when people say that, they kind of disregard other Hebrew poetry. If I can just help you out a little bit. Flip over to Psalm 136 with me. You're going to actually have me refer to a variety of passages of Scripture, and the point, and I'll tell you the point right now, is that God's work in creation is reiterated over and over and over again throughout all of Scripture. So it's hard for us if we're going to take the Bible seriously and if we're going to work through the, the book, the books of the Bible, the, the, the scriptures, what we're going to see is this, that the message of God's creation and God's work in creation is said in book after book by person after person. So we can look at Genesis a particular way if you want, but the problem is, is that we're going to do it devoid of what the scriptures say elsewhere unless we want to stay true to Scripture. And I find it interesting when people kind of wax eloquent and say, well, he, you know, Genesis is Hebrew poetry and we can't take it at face value, you know, we just got to take the high point. And yet in Psalm 136, the psalm writer, who is actually recounting in a psalm, a song with 
poetic language talking about the history of the Israelite people starts this way. In Psalm 136, verse 5, it says this. He, talking about God, if you want to go back, I can start in verse 1. It says this. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to God, excuse me, the God of gods, for he is faith, his faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his faithful love endures forever. He alone does great wonders. His faithful love endures forever. We're talking about God here. Verse 5, it says this, He made the heavens skillfully. His faithful love endures forever. Verse 6, he spread the lands on the waters. His faithful love endures forever. He made the great lights. His faithful love endures forever. Verse 8, the sun to rule by day. Verse 9, the moon and stars to rule by night. Sounds an awful lot like Genesis, right? Oh, but it's just poetry. He's just waxing spiritual. Verse 10, he struck the firstborn of the Egyptians. That's history. He brought the Israel out from among them. That's history. He divided the, the Red Sea. He led the Israelites through. In verse 14, he hurled Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. Verse 15, verse 16, he led his people into the wilderness and so on. That's all Jewish history. All started by recounting God's work in creation just the way that Genesis describes it. My point is, is that this is a historical record that God has put down for us to read and given to Moses as he puts the first five books of the Bible together, the Pentateuch. And so as we read Genesis chapter 1, we discover that we're talking about a historical event. If you want to say, well, that was, you know, that's the Psalms. I mean, you know, Psalm writers say stuff like that. Let me read Nehemiah chapter 9 for you. Verse 6. You, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to all of them, and all the stars in the heaven worship you. You, Lord, are the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and changed his name to Abraham. Verse 9, you saw the oppression of, your, of our ancestors in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, all his officials, and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly they treated your ancestors, and so on and so on, and so on. And Nehemiah, who is a very different individual than the psalm writer living at a very different time to a very different group of people, records the same history. God created the heavens and the earth. And I'm going to be coming from the perspective that God did it in six literal days, and that God made it to look mature. So you can argue or call me, if you like, a young earth creationist, because that's what I am. I think that there's strong argument for that. And I think that some of the other arguments don't connect with Scripture the way that they ought to. And so I just want to point out to you a couple things. We're going to be working from the perspective that God created all things in six literal days. On the seventh day, he rested. That, it, that is the model for our work week, which is clearly specified in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. That that would put that the earth and the universe would be no older than 10 to 15,000 years on the outside. Some of you are already saying, because you've studied science and you've heard the different arguments, Dave, that doesn't make any sense because scientists state at yada, yada, yada. And I am not a scientist, and I don't pretend to be. 
But I can tell you where those dates come from. I can tell you where the assumptions come from or the, 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 the thoughts and theories come from. The two main things is either the light from distance. I think that there's clear problems with at least the geological dating stuff. But here's the thing. Those are man-made theories. Those are things that they've come up with. And yet there are thoughts and ideas and teachings about Genesis that try to fit into those as opposed to looking at the scriptures and saying, this is what's plainly said. So how does that impact how I understand scientific discoveries and data? See the difference? The difference is I look at Scripture and I filter everything through the lens of Scripture or I look at what man and science and stuff says and then I say I filter my Bible through that. There's a big difference between the two of them. And in order to understand my relationship to God makes a big difference on how I'm going to understand if God really created everything or not and how God created it, and whether what God says in his word is actually true, or I'm going to say, no, I'm going to adjust that based on what man says is true. So I just want to throw a couple of things out to you. One of my actual favorite preachers, and I appreciate much of his teaching and preaching, actually falls in this camp, and this is where I would disagree with him. Um, it's the idea of progressive creation. Some people will read this passage and they'll say, well, the scientists give long periods of time to our history, and so I've got to fit scripture into long periods of time. And so they adopt an idea called progressive creation. And they'll say, well, yes, scripture says that God created light and darkness. And yes, the passage says there was morning and evening one day or day one, but... Scripture says elsewhere that to God a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. So, that morning and evening, day one, that's really more like thousands of years. And then you work the thousands of years from each of those days. And you get longer periods of time. And yet, the question has to be asked, why? Why are you trying to fit long periods of time into an account where it seems pretty clear that God created this? And then he says... It was morning and evening, day one. Time frames that we understand, morning and evening. We know what a 24-hour period of time is. We've got a time or a number and a duration in each of these days that help us to understand this is what we understand a literal day to be. So why would I need to adjust that to something else except that I would be trying to fit with what man says time frame should be? So my pastor uh, that I like to listen to, who is now deceased, he would fall into this camp. Now, God's not really talking about literal days here. He's talking about thousands of years in between. And it's the idea of trying to fit that into a current geological theory which says that the earth is ancient. And because it's an ancient earth, we've got to fit this into an ancient earth. Here's the problem. the ancient earth numbers, where we get them from, they are called into question. There is definite evidence that we can call these things into question. And so I'll get to that in a second, but that's the progressive idea that, well, yeah, I like the creation account, I'm okay with the creation account, I just wanna adjust the time frames a little bit. And then there are others that have adopted the theistic evolutionary process. So they are inclined to the, uh, to, to, evolution, but they don't want to discount scripture. They want to say, look, I believe in God, but I also believe in evolution, so I'm going to believe that God actually started the evolutionary process and just left it, and that's how we have what we have today. And so they'll look at it, and they'll say, well, Genesis is more just a spiritual idea. It's more of a religious story. God initiated, and then he oversaw the evolutionary process, and that is simpler creatures evolving into more complex creatures. 
The problem is, is that the moment we get into this now, we have actually undermined the significance of human beings as being a special part of God's creation. Because if all we are is a higher form of animal, then we are no longer special in God's creation. And we, there's no reason for us to look at it and say, I was uniquely made by God as a human being and that I have a unique relationship to God over and above the rest of God's creation. And we can get into all the other aspects of it, but the point is, is that just trying to meld those two things together undermines the purpose of why Genesis is so important. That God made me, and he made me unique, and he made me with purpose, and he made me with a special relationship with him. And man rebelled against God and decided that we were going to do it our own way, and yet God still loves us and sent a Savior to die for us and wants to redeem us, and wants to restore that broken relationship with us. But you know what? If I just evolve from something lower and lesser in the animal realm, then I'm not special in that sense that God would want to have a relationship with me above any other animal. And why would Jesus come to die for me then? And we can get into that more, but I just want to hang my, my hat right there and move on. Because the last kind of popular way that people look at the origins is that they just discount God out of the picture altogether. They wouldn't even recognize this passage of Scripture. They wouldn't recognize the Bible. And that is Darwinian evolution or naturalistic evolution. Why would I say that? Because in that idea and that theory and that thinking is that in the beginning, matter and energy came together, and ultimately life comes out of that. And that progresses from simpler organisms to more complex over time and chance. But right there in that, there is no God in the picture. I have no relationship with him. I don't need to have a relationship with him. I don't, I, I don't answer to God because there is no God. Great proponent of 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 Darwinian evolution or naturalistic evolution is Richard Dawkins. Now you can say, well, I know people that are evolutionists that are not atheists, that's fine. The point that I'm making is this. Richard Dawkins, a leading atheist, is a strong proponent of this. Why? Because he hates God. He wants to have nothing to do with God. And when pressed on the fact that at least the universe shows that there's some sort of intelligent design, there is a designer, there's intelligence behind it. When he was pressed on that, his response was, well, I guess I could concede that maybe aliens seeded our planet. Watch the interview where he said it, and I just thought, for him, he will do whatever it takes not to believe that God would have anything to do with the universe. And he'd rather believe, if he was going to step out in faith at all, is that some alien decided that they're going to seed our planet, and that's where life came from. A mass grave burial or a mass burial of 250 to 300 skeletons was discovered in the Derbyshire village of Renton, England in the 1980s. It seems likely they were the remains of the Scandinavian Vikings of the great heathen army who wintered in Repton over a millennium ago, around 873 to 874. Eyewitness accounts undisputably reported the army's historical presence during the 800s. So many modern historians conclude that these mass grave skeletons were those very Vikings. Let me read that again. Eyewitness accounts undisputably report the army's historical presence during the 800s. So many modern historians conclude that these mass grave skeletons were the very Vikings in those historical accounts. However, 
team of Imperial scientific investigators using routine carbon-14 radiometric dating methodology rejected that historical time frame, arguing instead for dating the skeletons a century or so ba older based on residual carbon-14 found inside the bones. Why would radiocarbon calculations indicate the buried warriors died during the 600s or 700s, a century before Derbyshire, why, well, excuse me, be a century or more before Derbyshire was overwhelmed by hordes of Vikings. Likewise, if radiocarbon determinations are so reliable, why is no Viking army reported as occupying Derbyshire during the 600s or 700s? This is from an article written uh, by the Institute for Creation Research, and the point of the article is this. It's one of many, by the way. They do all sorts of different articles and not just them, but other creation scientists who point out that the dating methods that we have are unreliable at best. This actually was an eyewitness account saying historians, those that lived during the time, wrote the history that this Viking horde came and attacked Repton. And these are the graves of those warriors that were fallen in battle. And yet scientific Methodology say, no, no, it can't be. It's got to be this much older. The article goes on to explain why the carbon-14 amounts would be different. I'm not going to get into it. Don't want to bore you to tears. But I encourage you, look this article up. Look other articles up on the Institute for Creation Research website. It's, it's instance after instance. If it's not radiometric dating, then it's potassium-argon dating or it's rubidium-strontium dating. It doesn't matter what they're called. It's just the way that the isotopes break down over time, and it's based on certain assumptions. But if the assumptions are wrong, then the dating methods are wrong. And clearly, those dating methods over time have been shown to be inaccurate, time after time after time. And yet, that's where we get some of the main numbers for the age of our Earth. And so what we're doing is we're taking faulty assumptions and we're trying to fit the biblical model into those why so that we sound more historical, so that we sound more scientific. When the Bible says, you know what? It's pretty clear that God created the heavens and the earth and all that are in them in six literal days. Morning and evening, day one. Morning and evening, day two. After every single day after God creates something, he says, you know what? This is good. I made something good. Why? Because I'm good. I'm God Almighty. I created this. I spoke it out of nothing. In the beginning, God created. The word created is the Hebrew word bara. It either, well, it always teaches one of two things, either newness or renewal. Some theologians would like to say that the, the term bara really means the idea of ex nihilo, which means created out of nothing. There are instances where that word is used, and it means just that creation out of nothing. When God spoke, there was nothing, and then there was something. But there are times when this word is actually used for renewal. But you know what the interesting thing is? Is that every time that word is used in the Hebrew, it has always got God as its subject. Only God creates. Nobody else creates. So when God says... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's exactly who did it. God created the heavens and the earth. And as Genesis chapter 2 says, the earth was formless and void, and then God starts to bring form to it. He separates the sky and the land. He puts vegetation on there, and so on, and so on, and so on. And only God creates and only God renews. David in Psalm 51 says, God created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. He's using the exact same word. Why? Because only God can create a new heart. Only God can renew a right spirit. But see, in order for us to even want a new heart and a right spirit, we need to acknowledge that, you know what, there is a God and I'm accountable to that God. 
what I want to emphasize is that Paul, in fact, preaches this very thing in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, he is in a place called the Europagus. He's standing in the middle of, of the Europagus in Athens, and it says this in verse 22, Paul stood in the middle of the Europagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. By the way, these folks would have been influenced by Greek scholars, Greek um, thinkers, Greek philosophers. You need to know that Darwinian evolution is not actually, well, it's not fair to say that Darwin came up with it because he, he only popularized a thought that other people had had throughout the centuries. And some of those people were Greek philosophers. And they believed that the universe came out of nothing. And these very people in the Areopagus were probably influenced by that thinking as much as we are today. And yet, they were religious people. Why? Because you know what? There was something inside of them that said, there's got to be a God. There's got to be somebody that we're accountable to. They probably saw the design and the planning in creation as much as we do. And they warred as sinful people like we do. do I, I don't want a God that rules over me, but I know that there is somebody greater than me out there. And they had idol after idol after idol and image after image after image that they worship. And Paul says, look, I, I recognize that you're spiritual. You, you're religious people. For I was passing through and observed the objects of your worship. I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. They wanted to cover all their bases. Paul says this, even, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And Paul says, I want to tell you about the one true God, the only God. And Paul says this, the God who made the worlds and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines by, made by hands. What's Paul say right off the bat when he's talking about God, when he's going to introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I want to tell you about the God that made all things, made the heavens and the earth and everything in it, including you. I want to tell you about the God that you are accountable to, the God that you don't know yet, but I want to introduce you to. And then he goes on. He says, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. And from one man he has made every nation to live under the whole earth and has determined the appointed times and, the, and boundaries where they live. Who's the one man? Adam. What's Paul doing? He's going right back to the creation account and saying, I want to tell you about the God of creation. I want to tell you about how he created all things. I want to tell you how you need to be accountable to this God because he's God Almighty. He did this so that, he, that, so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he's not far off from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for since we are also his offspring, since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by a human art and imagination. What's Paul saying? He's saying, you know what? We, our whole purpose, who we are, is found in God. We understand who we are in relationship to God. We understand our uniqueness in creation, and we understand our purpose and responsibility. What's Paul saying? Hey, there is a God, and you are accountable to him. This is your relationship to God. God is almighty. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere present all the time. He's eternal. He's outside of time. He's transcendent. He's immense. He's loving. He's holy. He's merciful. He's just, he's righteous, he's good. And you wouldn't have a purpose without him. You wouldn't have your being without him. 
And then he goes on, he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And then he goes on and he talks about the resurrection. He talks about Jesus Christ. He's saying, you know what? All of us one day we're going to stand accountable before this almighty God. And we're going to have to give an account for the way that we've lived our lives. And he's saying, you know what? God's calling all people to repent of their sin and to trust Jesus Christ whom he raised from the dead to save them. This is the God that we're talking about. This is the God that created all things. I find it interesting that we're unwilling to believe that God created things in six literal days, but we're willing to jump through hoops to say, well, you know what? I'm a progressive creationist. I believe that God actually did this over millions of years, but we'll just say that they were described as six literal days. Why would I need to go through that when my God's big enough to say, you know what, let there be light. Oh, there's light. Oh, let me plant a tree here. Let me plant a tree here. You know, ever notice that in the language of Genesis, all these things are created with maturity? Hey, look, there's a tree and it's got fruit bearing seed. I don't know about you. I'm not much of a green thumb. My wife and I try to do gardening, but you know what, every spring, it's a it's only by God's grace that we have plants, I think, this year. But anyway, we planted seeds in our raised beds. You know what's growing there now? Plants. You know what I didn't do? I didn't go out onto my raised beds or out onto my deck and say, let there be a plant. And there is a plant. Oh, and by the way, it already has its vegetables on it. I can't do that. I took a seed, I, I put it in the ground, I water it, I let the sun provide all its nutrients and everything else and it eventually sprouts and Lord willing it'll grow up and it'll bear something. God didn't do that. God said, let there be a tree. Oh, there's a tree. Already had fruit and seeds in the fruit after its kind, after its kind, after its kind. Unique kinds that continue to produce that kind. It takes more faith, I think, to believe that God did it over thousands of years with intervals. The idea of theistic evolution, I've actually, was talking to a friend of mine who is a scientist who's been filled full of evolution through all of his schooling, knows the scriptures, knows what the Bible actually says, but he's been taught it. And he and I were talking about the creation account. And I said, you know what I find interesting is this. So I struggle with theistic evolutionists because they want to say that God did all this stuff. And then when you press them on, they're like, well, you know, God, some, you know, miraculously kind of did some of these things or whatever. I just said, I, I find it interesting that things are evolving over millions of years. And even the progressive creationists, I said, I, I struggle with the fact that you've got to Say, God did this miraculously when you're not willing to say that God did this miraculously. You ever notice that God produced, or excuse me, created plants before he created the sun to give them what they need to grow? You ever notice that? In day three, he creates seed-bearing plants. Plants that bear fruit. That's Day three, he doesn't actually make the sun, moon, and stars until day four. Now, if it's a 24-hour period of time, I can say, hey, I can reason that. I can wrestle that. God creates the plants. Next day, he creates the sun. The sun gives all the plants what they need to continue to grow. But if I believe that a day is a 1,000 years plus, then God's got to literally keep those plants going for a 1,000 years plus until he actually produces the sun that's going to do what it needs to do for the plants. I don't know about you, but that's taken more, more work to come up with that one than just say, this is what God created, this is how God created it, and it makes sense because God makes sense. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But you know what? When he records this for us and he lays it out for us, we can see it and say, yes, God's the creator. He's the designer. Of course, there's purpose, there's a plan, there's a design. Why? Because God's the designer. 
Are we willing to take the eyewitness account that God has recorded for us? Or are we going to try to take what man says and then say, no, I'm going to read, the, I'm going to ignore the eyewitness account because this is what somebody else is saying. That was what was happening with Graves in Derbyshire. Hey, we won't take the historical record. We'll take this instead and skew the historical record. Or we'll say, no, this is the way that God made things, and I'm going to believe it because God said it. And oh, by the way, it's reiterated throughout history and throughout Scripture. Just so you know, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John uses the Word as a description of Jesus Christ. God the Son. All things were created through him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that has been created. He goes on though. He says this, he was in the world and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who are born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh nor, uh, or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son of God, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. John saying that Jesus, who was born after him as a human being, existed before he ever was born. Because Jesus is God. And Jesus was involved in creation. Jesus reiterates that. We'll talk about it actually when we get into the male and female part. But God, Jesus literally quotes Genesis chapter 1. I don't know about you, but if Jesus is quoting Genesis chapter 1 and saying, this is fact, I'm taking it. Lastly, in the book of Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it says this. It says, when the living creatures... Excuse me, whenever the living creatures give honor and glory and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, we're talking about God Almighty, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive honor and glory and power because you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Amen. From cover to cover, the Bible emphasizes that God created the heavens and the earth and all that it's in them. And so our response is, how do I respond to a God like that? How, are, how am I going to understand my purpose and my responsibilities before a God who created me? And how do I understand my uniqueness in creation? And what does that look like when I understand my uniqueness in creation? Am I going to filter what I hear through the lens of Scripture, or am I going to filter Scripture through what I hear? I don't know about you, but I'm going to take what Scripture says, and I'm going to filter what I hear through the lens of Scripture. I'm going to believe that God created all things in six literal days, because God can, and the Scriptures tell me He did. And I'm going to take, I'm going to put my confidence in the truth of God and His Word, and not infallible man. My encouragement to us is this, Christians, read Genesis chapter 1, read Genesis chapter 2, read with me this book as we work through it. Start to look at what we hear around us and filter it through the lens of Scripture, not vice versa. Ask ourselves the question, am I doing what God is calling me to do based on what His Word tells me? Do I really believe that I am uniquely created by God with a plan and a purpose that he has for me or would I rather live like 
I'm an atheist believing that I came from some lower life form and that I get to determine my life in my direction. Then ask yourself the question, how is that gonna go for you? Whenever I live like I'm God, it's a mess. So I, I can only speak my, for myself, but I'm a pretty stupid guy. I need an infinitely wise and knowledgeable and powerful God to direct me. Christians, are we actually doing that? Are we too much worried about what the, the world says? If you're here this morning, I'm gonna go back to Paul's words, right? He says that one day we're going to stand before this God and we are gonna be judged by a righteous God. And he's calling you to repent today. We didn't get into it, but in Genesis chapter three, we will discover and we will learn that Adam and Eve, man and woman that God created, who had a wonderful relationship with him in the garden, decided that they would rather live their way, not God's way, and plunged all of humanity into sin and corruption. We are sinful human beings and we need to repent of our sin and trust Jesus Christ, God's son, who was there at creation speaking the world into existence. And he came and he condescended and he came as a human being and he died on the cross of Calvary as a sinless, spotless human being to pay the penalty for our sin so that when we put our faith and trust in him, we are made righteous before God and our sins are forgiven. That is what God is calling you today to do. Repent of your sin and trust Jesus. Would you do that? Because one day you're gonna stand before this God that created all things and you're gonna have to give an account. When you rather be able to say, I've given my life to Christ, I'm saved. I'm cleansed from my sin. I don't need to be judged for it anymore because of what Jesus did for me. I encourage you to trust Christ today. May we endeavor to learn as much as we can as we study the book of Genesis. Let's pray.